well, this is fun. This has been uh, fun and challenging. I feel like I've, I've done more preaching in the last couple of months here than I have in the last couple of years. It's been fun and challenging. And, um, and digging back into these stories that I thought I knew, I see so many new things. It's been um, really, really awesome. Um, <laughs> once again, we're beginning a new series. And as my dad just said, cue the music, Christopher. Our new series. All right. All right. If you know this song, stand up. Bob Marley more than any human being alive who doesn't smoke weed. I do not smoke weed. Never have. It's the truth. I love Bob Marley. <laughs> and if you, if you go uh, go watch, there's a, the only sort of official documentary ever made about Bob Marley. It's called Marley, and it's really interesting. And whether you like him or not, you love that documentary. Go watch it. If you don't know anything about Bob Marley, we can be friends, but we don't have a whole lot to talk about. <laughs> All right, beginning a new series. Once again, because we want to inspire biblical literacy and a passion for the scripture. This is God's story, and we won't fully know our place or context until we see ourselves as part of his story. I've obviously said that every single week. These stories are our beginning. In fact, these stories have spoken to people and formed culture for thousands of years and they very much define us today. For example, the Bible is the first recorded piece of literature that speaks out on behalf of women, children, the poor, and the oppressed. I realize this is complicated for reasons that we can't get into today. But for any issue you might have with the way the Bible says it, it was revolutionary in this way throughout most of recorded history. The Bible says... Let your slaves go every seven years. This kind of thing doesn't happen throughout most of history. We had to have the bloodiest war in our nation's history before we'd let go of our slaves. But the Bible said that thousands of years ago. And the Bible has been saying those type of things for a long, 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 long time. And it was one of the very first places in all of history you heard those types of things spoken. So, anyway... That gets really complicated when you dig into the violence and all the other stuff that happens in the Bible. But just the idea alone was revolutionary. Right? The Bible says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and laid down his life for her. This was not normal, you have to understand. Throughout most of history, this is, this is the way things have been. Throughout most of history, until the last tiny sliver of history, men didn't serve the women the women served the man, and the women had no rights. Even in Jesus' day, when a man got tired of his wife, he would offer her a certificate of divorce and marry someone else. This is the primary reason Jesus condemned divorce, is because the woman had no rights and she was doomed afterwards. This is all relevant to what I'm talking about. But the Bible is absolutely revolutionary. Absolutely revolutionary. We just don't think of it because we live in that little sliver of history where people do have some rights. 
or more so than they ever had anyway. The reason all this is relevant when we're talking about Moses and the Exodus is because of this. The fact that God would take notice and hear the cry of an enslaved people group was an insanely revolutionary idea. Other gods didn't do this. This was an entirely new way to see the divine. I was texting with my friend, a good friend of mine the other night. Um, uh, he's, uh, he's Egyptian. He, he, was, I, he was either born in the U.S. or he came when he was very, very young. But his parents were born in Egypt and he has uh, lots of relatives in Egypt. And he goes and visits um, his family in Egypt and he keeps up with them. So he obviously you know, um, knows a lot about uh, Egyptian culture, especially the Egyptian Christians and the Coptic culture. Um, and I was texting with him last night about this, and he was saying that this was actually God's very identity to his people, the God who rescued them from slavery. That's how they thought about God. That's who God was. That was God's identity. Remember to this point throughout scripture, God dealt mostly with specific individuals, Adam, Eve, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And now for the first time, we see God taking on the and establishing a relationship with millions of people. This was unprecedented. This was unprecedented throughout recorded history anyway. I mean, I think God's always been available to people, anyone who would seek the Lord. But this is the first time in recorded history we see a God reaching out to an entire people group. This story is so fundamental to who you are that you may not even recognize it. Moses' influence is so implicit in your life and world that you probably don't even think about it. That people should be treated equally and fairly has not been a given for most of human history. The idea was handed down from God through Moses. Any idea of freedom that any of us can lay claim to began as a spark here in the book of Exodus. And that's why there's a big problem with wanting to throw out this book and throw out these ideas. And that's why things get, though things are really complicated here, to throw out these ideas is a huge mistake. A huge mistake. So let's talk a little bit about Moses. I love Moses. I named one of my children Moses. Moses' name means drawn out of water, and we're going to see why in a minute. But I love this because we see at the climax of the Exodus story, Moses walks his people through the Red Sea, and a nation is born on the other side. Under his leadership, Israel is also drawn out of water. And of course, we are drawn out of water into the faith. When we're baptized, we come up out of the water a new person. This is beautiful. And I love that about Moses. And you said Moses' name. You said drawn out of water. Moses is one of the most influential people in the Bible. It's assumed that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And sort of the backbone or the cornerstone of the whole Old Testament. 
It's assumed that Moses wrote those. Also, Moses is a significant type or foreshadow of Christ. See a lot of commonalities in between Christ and Moses, and Moses speaks to Jesus. That we could talk all day about that. Number three, number not number three, but next. <laughs> He's the first real leader of the free nation of Israel before Egypt. Remember, they were just a family. Moses is also one of the most influential people in human history. I was texting it with another friend of mine. Um, he's a friend I met a while back uh, in ministry, and, and after a few years in ministry, he decided he wanted to study law. So he moved across the country, and he studied law. He got his law degree, and he moved to uh, New York, and he is a practicing lawyer in Manhattan. So he's, he's legit. <laughs> you can't win an argument with him. He's the most articulate person I've ever met, and he's in, in, incredibly smart. But I was texting him, so I was asking him, how important is Moses to law. And he sent me, you know, a huge explanation, but he basically said this. He said, this is a little bit oversimplified. He said, but basically, civilization is built upon the law, and our law is a product of the law of Moses. So basically, all civilization as we know it leans on Moses or what God spoke through Moses. You don't really think about that very often, do you? But we're able to meet here in peace and able to live life and drive cars and stop at red lights, all that type of stuff that we're able to do and the, the way society is supposed to work, not saying it always does. In fact, we obviously know it doesn't always work that way. But the way society is supposed to work has a lot to do with Moses and what the Lord spoke through the man Moses. Cool? Let's talk about a little bit of history. You know, I spoke a little bit a while, a while back on the story of Joseph. Joseph is sold uh, into Egypt, and uh, you know he, later on he, he becomes a very powerful person. And his his brothers come during the famine, and he ends up saving them from the famine. And uh, Pharaoh loves them, and so he treats them really well. And so they basically live there. And over time, uh, they grow from a small family to a very large group of people, right? Very large group of people. And over a number of, was it 400 years? Over 400 years, they grow to a huge group of people, and the new Pharaoh uh, begins to look at them and realize that if they all banded together, they could overthrow his kingdom. And so he instated some laws to make sure that didn't happen. Um, he uh, created taskmasters for them and gave them all jobs and, and basically uh, they became slaves. And then he decided that too many men were being born so Pharaoh decided to kill all the male children. And that's where we're going to start our story here. And I'm just going to read it because it's not that long and it's worth reading. Is that okay? It's a little hard. With one hand, this Bible is so heavy. I realize why preachers have a big Bible. A couple weeks ago, I couldn't read very well. And I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. See, the, the word's really big in the big Bible, but the downside is it's really heavy. 
Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, let us set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, uh, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. The Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly, they went from shrewdly to ruthlessly. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shephira and the other was named Puah, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. How cool is that? Talk about heroes. You wonder if they died, if they were killed for that. Opposed midwives, opposed the most powerful man in the world. That's amazing. Because the midwives feared God. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God... <laughs> midwives were sly. Those Hebrews are hardcore, man. They just get it done. <laughs> they don't need the playlist and the candles and all that stuff. So God dealt with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, I love that the midwives are fearing God. Because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Whew. Heavy. Heavy. Now remember how the story ends. You'll hear it later in the month about them coming out of the water. So here is, uh, just make a point here, here is um, Pharaoh throwing them in the water. But in the end, if you know the story, who ends up in the water? Right? It's beautiful. Beautiful story. And true. And a true story, I think. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dubbed it with, this word I can't pronounce, and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. 
Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew children. Then, uh, then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses. Because, she said, I drew him out of water. Beautiful. I love all the lady heroes in this. You have the midwives, and you have the sister, and you have the mother, and you're just brave. I mean, they, they go against Pharaoh like three or four times here. They, it's beautiful, right? And even Pharaoh's daughter, right? She rescues him. Beautiful. Drawn out of water. That would be the name of my message. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. That's where we're going to end our portion of the story. So, most of you know this story, or at least a little bit of it. We grew up hearing this story. It's a really important story. Um, it's also a really beautiful story, right? And there's a lot to talk about in this story. A lot to talk about. And I, man, reading back to this story, uh, some things that hit me pretty hard, and I'm just going to lay it out here to you, okay? Is that all right? Um, I'll let you guys figure it out or work through it. But I felt like this is the direction I was supposed to go, and I'm just going to give you some of my observations and... A couple ideas, and then we're going to be we're going to be done. All right. My first observation is this, and this is really heavy, you know. But I mean, church is the place to talk about heavy stuff. Um, number one is think about the brutality of the times, you know, slavery and beating and murdering children and throwing kids into the water. I mean, this was rough. This was super rough, and I kept thinking about how rough it was. But I think that it's important that we don't assume that they lived in a different time than we live. Because their time was rough, but I, I'm pretty convinced that our time is, is no less savage than their time was. We live in savage days just like they did. I'm just going to read you some statistics here to prove my point. And I, this all came up for me a while back when I was asking. I did a, I don't, I don't know. I tweeted something about, do you think that technology has made our lives better or worse? And, you know, I got two responses back, you know. But a couple of people were like, are you kidding me? How could you even imagine that technology has not made our lives infinitely better? I was like, well, I'll come back to that in a second, but. The Washington Post reported that there are 30 million slaves in the world today. 
right now. There are 30 million slaves in the world today. And 60,000 of those slaves live in the United States. Last century, the one most of us were born in, was the most violent century in all recorded history. In the last century, both China and Russia murdered 60 million people apiece. In the United States, there have been 54 million abortions since 1973. 2.5 billion people live without clean water and die regularly from diseases. 1.2 billion people live without electricity. 5 billion people live without access to a surgical doctor. 5 billion people live without access to a surgical doctor. That means 5 billion people, if they have a uh, problem that requires a minor surgery, it means they die. Billions live without any type of practical protection from police or government. This means that when someone robs you, you stay robbed. When someone threatens you, you run or leave. I read a statistic recently that in most of the developing world, a rapist is more likely to be struck by lightning than penalized or punished. The world is still brutal. We're just distracted from the brutality. But I am convinced that the God who heard the cry of Israel still hears the cries today. And this is important, not to bum everybody out, but so that we cannot allow ourselves to distance ourselves from the Moses story and assume that our world is so different than his world. Because when we think our world is different than his world, then we start, we, we cease to extract the real lessons that, um, that the Bible is trying to teach us. When we assume that we're not like Moses, right? We assume that we're not like Moses. I'm trying not to get ahead of myself here, but I, I have thought about this. Is, um, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to get ahead of myself. I'm going to keep going here, okay? Um, you know, we all know about, uh, the flood in Texas. Um, I have some good friends in Houston. I've been keeping up with them, and, um, at some point we're going to do some sort of benefit or something to, um, buy supplies and ship them down there, um, because they're going to have years, years of work to do in Texas. Um, so there, um, there's a lot going on down there, and our hearts are definitely with them. But also recently, um, there was also a major flood in Bangladesh. In Texas, 60 people have died, and that's awful. But in Bangladesh, 1,200 people so far have died. It's all happening about the same time. And why does that matter? As Texas is in the U.S. and Bangladesh seems so far away. But the thing is, in Bangladesh, they make your clothes. As you're probably touching Bangladesh right now. You might be more intimate with Bangladesh than you are with Texas. This is no way making light of what's happening in Texas. I'm just trying to shed some light here on an issue. And this is the issue. In the coming years, we're going to have to reevaluate who we consider our neighbors. Your neighbor is, in my opinion, anyone who's affected by your decisions is your neighbor. And because of the nature of the world, our decisions are affecting people who live further and further away from us. Right? Right? 
want to read a scripture here, and then I'm going to move on from this point. Not that my next point is any less bummer. No. And I want to say this. Is that don't develop a um, callous to the justice message just because overzealous, angry people have hijacked the justice message or rallied around the justice message. Don't become calloused. Because that message is ingrained in the Bible. You can't get away from it in the Bible. Okay? This is Isaiah 58. 58.6. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless and pour into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up steadily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, and then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in the scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And so basically what the prophet is saying here is that um, he's saying that we want to fast, we want to sacrifice for the Lord. And sometimes the Lord is like, don't forget that this whole thing is about people. This is look around. Look at the people in the room. Don't just look at the songs on the screen. Don't just look at the words on the screen. So if you're, if you're reading and taking in the words on the screen, you'll realize that the nature of God is his love for people. And that's why you can't love God and not love your neighbor because they're not two separate things. They're one the same thing. And remember, we've been placed on this earth to care for it and to cultivate it. We don't fix the world, but like a garden or a career or a friendship, we cultivate it, develop it. It's a joy and supreme act of worship to find the Lord's heart for other people. Finding God's heart for other people is why we exist, I think. Not just as a responsibility, but as a supreme joy. You were created to be a producer, not a consumer, a giver, not a taker. And we all know this deep down. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, we were crafted for the express purpose of reminding the world about how good God is. Another, another observation here. You see how Moses kills the Egyptian. How often do we try to do the right thing the wrong way? You know, the definition of sin is to miss the mark, to fire crooked. The picture that sin, the word sin paints is like an arrow that's not quite sitting right on the bow. Or is that is that's curved, right? To do the right thing the wrong way. This is the idea of sin. It's not that sin 
is directly opposed to God, but that sin is just slightly turned so that your trajectory ends up far off, right? Passion, energy, and ambition will never make you who you're called to be. Sometimes you need to walk around the desert for a while. Sometimes before you can bring captives up from Egypt, God has to get the Egypt out of you. You know how whenever you watch a movie or you read a Bible story or you read a story or hear a story, you always identify with the protagonist, right? You always identify with the hero, right? As we read the Bible stories, we always identify with the Israelites, we identify with King David when he's winning, not when he's doing the other stuff, right? You know, when you watch the movies, you're... You're always Captain America. You're never Hydra, right? You're always Spider-Man. You're never the Green Lantern. No, no, no. You're always the Green Goblin, right? You're uh, you're always Wolverine. You're never Magneto, right? And I think Magneto's pretty awesome, but... <laughs> right? You're always David and you're never Saul, right? We're never the Egyptians. We're never the uh, Babylonians. We're never the Romans, Right? But I think it's a very, very important practice that we read these stories specifically and we see ourselves in every side. So here's the problem. Everybody's the hero, right? The villain always thinks he's the hero. The villain always, the villain never thinks he's wrong, she's wrong, right? The worst villains think they have the noblest aims, right? Throughout history, like some of the worst things that have ever happened in human history, those people thought they were doing the right thing or the best thing or the important thing. I mean, I told you this message was going to be heavy. So here's my point. What differentiates us from them? If they think they're the hero, but really they're the villain, and we think we're the hero, I mean... Do you catch what I'm saying? And Jesus put his finger on this. He put his finger on this when he told us to love our enemies. Because if people can be blind, then we can be blind too. And when you demonize your enemy, you curse yourself. Because you deny your potential to be like them. Now you don't deny your potential to be like them. You deny that you might have that potential and you allow that potential to fester. When you can't see your enemy as people like you, then you're in danger of growing blind to the fact that you can become like them. The shocking thing about travesties that have taken place throughout history is most of those people actually thought, (laughs) excuse me, most of those people were a lot like us. They had families and friends. A lot of them went to church. A lot of them went to church. So I guess if you always see yourself as the hero, consider practicing yourself as not the hero. Practicing yourself as Zacchaeus, 
Practice as seeing yourself as one of the Romans who nailed Jesus to the cross. Practice as seeing yourself as the Egyptians. Because here's my point. At what point did Moses realize, I'm on the wrong side? He grew up with money. He grew up with education. He grew up with everything that the most powerful kingdom in the land had to offer at his fingertips. He grew up with all of it. And it would have been very easy for Moses just to live that life and to have everything handed to him and have the riches and the wealth and the power and the girls and the parties, right? That would have been easy. But at what point did he realize, like, maybe I'm on the wrong team? And to me, this is one of the most significant character traits of Moses, is that he was willing to walk away to leave his kingdom for something he believed in even more. And this is what you see in all the important men and women of the Bible, is they're all willing to walk away and step away from something good because they believe in something they have not seen and something they don't fully understand. I mean, you see that Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Jesus. This is another insane, insanely fascinating picture of Jesus. The fact that Moses would walk away, would give up everything he had. And then you see Jesus giving up everything he had to become like us. Moving on. You know, sometimes the thing that intimidates you is often the thing that is training you to overcome. The thing that you're afraid of that you think is holding you back is often the thing that will make you great. Pharaoh was trying to destroy uh, Israel, but at the same time, bouncing Moses on his knee. Feeding him and paying for his education. Pharaoh was personally raising the great deliverer who would break his very kingdom. Moses was trained in all the ways of Egypt. He spoke without an accent. He knew Egyptian literature. He'd likely been trained to lead by the finest teachers in the land. Uh, you guys ever heard of Graham Cook? He has this story of how he used to do these prophecy schools. Um, back in uh, the early 90s or the 80s, and he had these three guys who hated him. And these three guys would come, and they'd sit on the front row, and if Graham said anything that was slightly controversial or he'd misquote a scripture or whatever, they would write it down, and they would post it in a newsletter that went to lots and lots of people. They'd follow him around the country, and everywhere he was preaching, they'd sit on the front row, and they would sit there, and they would pick him to pieces. Any of you ever worked in an environment like that before? Where people are literally shredding you as you work? Literally, any small uh, mistake that you make is going to be amplified and is going to be revealed to the entire world, right? And he hated these guys so much. For a long time, uh, he prayed that the Lord would deal with them. And then he had this dream. Graham Cook had this dream. In this dream, 
There was a block of stone and his hand, which he knew was the hand of God, was chiseling out this stone. I might misquote this a little bit, but there was a hand, or no, there were these, (laughs) something like this. There was a hand with these three tools that were chiseling out this stone, right? Chiseling out the stone. He knew it was the Lord that was doing it. And when the the stone finished, it was the statue of Graham himself. And he said it was glorious, right? It's a beautiful statue. And he said, but Lord, what were the tools that you were using to make such an incredible piece? And the Lord revealed that those tools were the three guys who came and sit on the front row. As Graham said that, if if he had any integrity as a preacher, as a teacher, as a man of God who spoke to people, it was because those three sat there and ripped him to pieces and he had to work. And every time he spoke a message, he had to dig in and make sure he fully believed it and fully understood it and had his mind fully around it and that his messages were fully formed when he brought them because those three guys were going to rip him to shreds. He realized those three guys made him a badass. Sorry, it is the appropriate term. And listen, I want to share this, and I I really hope this doesn't come across as bragging, because as a musician, I'm insanely hard on myself. Most days I feel like a failure, and I know all my shortcomings, so please don't take this like I'm gloating, because I'm not. But people have told me I'm a good lyric writer. And there are a lot of people who have told me otherwise, too. But I know that it hasn't been my voice that's taken me to 46 states around the world. It's been my drive to write an engaging lyric. So I knew that I was never going to make it as a singer. If anyone was going to notice me, then I had to have engaging content, and I've built a career around that. If I'd been a good singer, I would have never made it. So the thing that intimidated me the most, that I was the most concerned about, and the thing that I just couldn't get over, the place where I felt like I just couldn't win, right, required that I grow strong in another area, that I pour into another area. I've, I have uh, a friend who's a producer, and he has such a hard time with good singers. He says, because good singers a lot of times don't bring great songs to the table. Because when, when you can sing the phone book and you're engaging... Then you have no drive. But when you're like me, you know, who couldn't sing and have had to work really, really hard just to sing okay, I knew that I had to somehow (laughs) excel in another area. So had I been a good singer, no one would have noticed me because there are a lot of good singers. But I was forced in my weakness to cultivate something in another area. The very thing that intimidates you, that holds you back, is often the thing that's training you to overcome. So what is it in your life that you're afraid of? What is it that haunts you and intimidates you? I mean, really... We don't like to think about that stuff. We don't like to deal with that stuff. What is the dragon that you need to slay? What is the thing that you most want to avoid? 
that very thing could be working in you something that is uh, more powerful and greater than you even imagine. And this is my last point here. Like Moses, you were also drawn out of the water. Like Moses, you are also drawn out of water. I've said this before, and I hope I never stop saying this. But you have won the lottery. You have won the cosmic lottery. A billion dollars is a drop in the bucket compared to actual existence. You were suspended on a rock surrounded by billions and billions of square miles. And 99.99% of it is black, cold, hostile, nothing. Most of the universe is nothing. Nothing at all. There's much more nothing in the universe than something. That makes anything that actually exists to be a miracle and anomaly. You of all people that could have been happen to be here on the only livable speck of dust in the entire known galaxy. It's like there's a, one sliver of space in all reality where a living thing could have actually been animated. And in that reality, you happened. You happened. I don't know why, but you happened. It could have been anyone else, but it was you. And you think your life is so normal. There's nothing normal about your life. You're an anomaly. You are a miracle of the highest degree. You are a mind-blowing work of art. You are supernatural. You've already been given the greatest gift. And every second you don't revel in the joy of it. Every breath that isn't praise. Every moment you allow yourself to be confused by the illusion of normalness. Is like taking a billion dollar check and lighting it on fire. Moses was drawn out of water of all the babies who were cast into the Nile. All the babies, all the boys who were destroyed. He happened to be plucked out of water by Pharaoh's daughter. And you wonder if his parents told him that story. Because he obviously had a relationship with his mom. His real mom. If they told him that story. If he ever thought about what it meant to be alive. And maybe somewhere in that story was the spark or the seed. That caused him to break. When he was old enough to realize how his people were being treated. And he was willing to walk away. And leave it all for something he didn't understand and didn't know how it would turn out. And we should feel that way too. That we've been drawn out of water, we've been plucked out of obscurity into reality.
and God's calling us to pursue something that we don't fully understand, like Abraham, calling us to a way of life we don't know, to a city we've not seen, And it's hard to lay down something that's good for something you don't fully understand. It's hard to walk away from something that's good and step in to the mystery. But every real hero as God loves everybody, loves everybody. But the people who impress God are the people who walk to the edge. Amen. Why don't you guys stand up? Let's pray. You guys want to come up and pray? Lord Jesus, Father God, Holy Spirit, we love you. We love you. And uh, we realize, Holy Spirit, that you are always present. You're always here. It's We're the ones who are not always present, God. So we do ask you that we become a more present people. And we ask you that you would uh, touch our hearts. Put your finger on those places that we have not wanted to talk about. Put your hand... On that place in our heart, Lord, that's causing us some pain. And whisper to us. Be kind to us. You are kind to us. Continue to be kind to us. And in your kindness, call us out on the edge. Call us out on the beyond. Call us out into the mystery, Lord. Because we don't always know what we're stepping into. But if we're doing it with you, that's enough. That's enough. In Jesus' name, amen. That's good. A uh, couple of things. You can have a seat just for maybe two more minutes. One of the things um, that struck me this morning, um, I felt like it was real easy this morning to feel uncomfortable. How many of you would, come on, raise your foot. Come on, look, come on. But here, here's one of the characteristics. I, I got saved during the Jesus movement back in the 60s and have spent my whole life going for the next thing. So I've, I haven't been a Moses in that regard, but I understand wanting to see the next thing. That's why you're in this building. You know, look at this place. Give me a break. <laughs> you know, warehouse. Why? 
Well, there's something in us that wants, even if we don't understand it, we want to make progress. We, we want to see things better. But one of the characteristics of how that happens is you feel uncomfortable. Anytime God does a new, powerful, important, or significant thing, you will only get the benefit if you are willing to go through being uncomfortable. That's all. Whether it's a move of the Holy Spirit. Listen, if the Holy Ghost was moving like I've seen him move, everybody in here would be uncomfortable with what happened. There could be yelping, squealing, laughing, drunkenness, weird tears, crazy people doing stupid stuff. But that's just one thing that happens. But there's that common care. So when we talk about justice and we talk about, actually the Bible says in Psalm 89 that the foundation of God's throne, the place where he sits, is on two things, righteousness and justice. So we have to really pay attention to that. So I felt uncomfortable this morning when John Mark was speaking because he speaks messages. I don't really feel like speaking. I'm a different kind of, I'm a different cat, you know. But that's why we need more voices. We don't need just one perspective. And so I really appreciate what you said, John Mark. That was very powerful. I think it it's a challenge. It's causing us to look at life a little bit differently, and we really, really do need to. Um, the last thing I want to say is this. Whenever God has determined to bring a deliverer, the natural order tries to kill as many people as possible. Have you ever noticed that? When you look at when Jesus was born, how many of you are aware that um, uh, King Herod killed all the children under the age of two in that whole part of the world, all the male children? Well, when I think about abortion, I think about, in our nation, I, th- I think this, it's, it's as bad as that is, it's a sign, it's an indicator that God is trying to raise up a liberating people. A people of righteousness and justice who are empowered with, with the Spirit of God. Because that's gone on down through history. We see that happen. So, anyway, we do have ministry teams today. Anyone who'd like prayer for healing or encouragement or just you don't even know why you need it, but you want it. If you will come up right now here when we conclude, and if you'll come right over here, we'll be glad to have some people who have been trained and who are practitioners of moving in the prophetic and healing. So. God bless you folks. Have a great week. Go be kind to somebody. See what happens, okay? Amen.